Messieurs, Mesdames, as you all know, I was called in by Monsieur Jean Cavendish to investigate this case. I at once examined the bedroom of the deceased, which, by the advice of the doctors, had been kept locked, and was, consequently, exactly as it had been when the tragedy occurred. I found, first, a fragment of green material, second, a stain on the carpet near the window, still damp, thirdly, an empty box of bromide powders. Welcome to Type This Cast. I'm Janelle. And as you may have noticed, things are a little different around here today. And they will be for the next episode, too. As previously mentioned, Becky and I are doing solo episodes on our areas of expertise, if you will. This is my solo episode on Dame Agatha Christie's Detectives. Specifically, I'll be sharing with you my thoughts about the Enneagram types of Monsieur Hercule Poirot and Miss Jane Marple. Admittedly, and just in case you haven't been able to tell yet, I am a huge fan of Dame Agatha Christie and her work. And having spent a decent amount of time studying her, I have also found myself developing uncommon opinions about what she did and her value within not just detective fiction, but the wider literary world. And therefore, I can get a little combative when I run into certain assumptions about the queen of crime. I'll try to be strictly informative and leave the heavier arguments for another time. But I do have to start by simply saying, if you haven't read Christie's work before, whether because you just honestly don't know who she is, or because you associate her with your grandparents, stop it. Go pick up one of these stories I'm using today, or really any of her books, and get reading. Like, right now. Well, okay, fine. I'll keep going. You could have paused it and picked up a book and read it, but might as well keep listening. The Queen of Crime. Yes, that is one of the nicknames for Christie. Has been outsold only by the Bible and Shakespeare. And with 66 published detective novels, 14 short story collections, all of which have been translated into several languages, and the world's longest-running play, The Mousetrap, it's not hard to see why she gets that moniker. Another fun fact... In her personal life, she lived through an experience worthy of a plot of one of her novels. She disappeared for over a week, and despite a countrywide manhunt for her, extensive police and journalistic interest in the case, she was missing for a total of 11 days. Even after she was found, she never once spoke about what happened or why she disappeared. That doesn't mean storytellers haven't had their go with the story and attempted to fill in the gaps. There have been many several films, books, and even a Doctor Who episode that all try to explain what happened. 
Agatha Christie's work is part of a particular subgenre of detective fiction, that which is called the Golden Age. Although the definitions are wide and various for the Golden Age of detective fiction, for today I'll stick with and share with you the definition I crafted for my master's dissertation from those many other definitions. It is British detective fiction written between 1918 and 1945, which conforms to the plot structure of beginning, the discovery of the crime, middle, the investigation, and end, the discovery of the criminal. And it emphasizes logic and reason to bring the criminal to justice. I hear what you're saying. If you listened into the last episode, you're probably thinking, that sounds a lot like all of Sherlock's stories. And you're right. Doyle, Holmes, and even Dr. John Watson had a huge impact on the Golden Age. But authors and critics from the Golden Age got very interested in making actual lists of rules for the stories to follow. One writer even went as far as making a list of Ten Commandments of Detective Fiction. Check out that gem in the show notes if you're interested. Golden Age detective fiction was largely written between the two world wars, and so the authors, while still dealing with a grim subject, seem to be looking for a way to bring order out of the chaos of war and out of the rapidly changing society around them. So these stories can feel pretty safe, reminding the readers that even in the face of the atrocities of war or domestic murder, there's a way to bring order back. And as I'm sure Becky will talk about next time, there were people who were dissatisfied, to say the least, by the seemingly tidy bows Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, Niall Marsh, and the many others wrapped around these stories about crime. I say seemingly tidy because although Agatha Christie is known as a creator of the Golden Age era slash subgenre of detective fiction and has become almost synonymous with cozy murder mysteries, I would argue, and have argued, that if you're actually paying attention when you read her work, she regularly thwarted those conventions and is only as cozy as a warm blanket of fiberglass insulation. I know, I know, them's fattened words, and I said I'd try to steer clear of some of that. So if you want to have a longer conversation about this, you know how to find me on the social meds. But back to the subject at hand. Christie is unique among mystery authors in a few ways, but in particular, she's unique in that she created two equally popular famous detective characters in Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple. Those of you listening because you love Christie's stories may be yelling at me that I'm forgetting a few. Don't get me wrong. I love Tommy and Tuppence Beresford, Superintendent Battle, Parker Pine and his crazy stories, and Harley Quinn also. But for today, I'm sticking with these two primary detectives. Monsieur Hercule Poirot, a former Belgian police detective and refugee of the Great War, would become 
almost as famous as Sherlock Holmes, garnering many firsts, but notably a front-page obituary in the New York Times in 1975, the publication, or following the publication of his final story. That front-page obituary was a first for any fictional character. Poirot arrived on the scene in The Mysterious Affair at Stiles, which was published in 1920. Miss Jane Marple's character originated in a Poirot story, but not under that name. When Agatha Christie created Caroline Shepherd, the shrewd and observant spinster sister of the narrator, Dr. Shepherd, for the murder of Roger Ackroyd, she realized she had a character who could be as great a detective as Poirot, but in quite a different way. And just one year after the publication of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, Miss Marple made her debut in the short story The Tuesday Night Club in 1927. And by 1930, she was starring, if you will, in her first full-length novel, The Murder at the Vicarage. In order to type each of these characters, I have done my best to limit myself to the stories in which they first appeared. As mentioned above, for Poirot, that's The Mysterious Affair at Styles, and for Miss Marple, that's The Tuesday Night Club. Unfortunately, this means that I had less content to study for Miss Marple, since it's a short story, and so while I have some thoughts about her type, it was harder to type her by sticking to just The Tuesday Night Club. Truly, both of these characters are amazing and could easily have a whole episode of their own. And honestly, they each deserve their own episode. That being said, shall we begin? Just a reminder for you, here's a quick overview of the Enneagram types with the monikers we have landed on for each, and a brief I statement for each as well. Type 1, the reformer. I do everything the right way. Type 2, the Befriender. I help others. Type 3, the Motivator. I am seen as successful. Type 4, the Romantic. I am unique. Type 5, the Observer. I need to understand the world. Type 6, the Guardian. I need to be secure. Type 7, The Enthusiast. I am happy and open to new things. Type 8, The Challenger. I must be strong. Type 9, The Peacemaker. I am agreeable. Admittedly, it's a little weird not having the, uh, the lightning round now, but I'll just start in. Poirot is a one. We don't meet him until chapter two of The Mysterious Affair at Styles, and when we do, his good friend Hastings describes him as follows. Boireau was an extraordinary-looking little man. He was hardly more than five feet four inches, but carried himself with great dignity. His head was exactly the shape of an egg, and he always perched it a little on one side. His mustache was very stiff and military. 
the neatness of his attire was almost incredible. I believe a speck of dust would have caused him more pain than a bullet wound. Okay, let me just say that again for some emphasis. Hastings, Poirot's friend, says that I believe a speck of dust would have caused him more pain than a bullet wound. Can anyone else say perfectionistic here? Oh my goodness. Throughout the mysterious affair at Styles, Poirot is not only brushing what Hastings calls invisible specks of dust off of his clothing. He is also constantly arranging and rearranging everything from decor in other people's homes to other people's attire many times, not just in this book, but for the case of today, even in The Mysterious Affair at Styles, Poirot will point out how Hastings must have been getting ready too quickly and therefore his tie is askance and will fix it for his friend. And he actually, in this book, goes as far as noticing something askew in the crime scene, adjusts it, minor spoiler alert, they leave the crime scene, someone breaks in, he comes back and then readjusts the thing he already adjusted. And let's just say that leads to something that breaks the case wide open later on. But I'll leave it there so you can find out what that is on your own. It's noticing these little things that are out of place that just screamed oneness to me. Ones are called reformers. Because when they walk into a room or a situation, the first thing they notice is what's not right, what's wrong, because they see the world how it could be and are in that hopeful space. And so immediately they find the things that aren't ideal and they see the way in which they can be made right. And because I simply limited myself to this one work, I can't go on a tangent right now about Poirot's rants about truth and the vile wrongness of murder. But I promise you, they happen with great frequency. If you're saying at this point, okay, Janelle, sure, but he could just be neurotic about order and cleanliness. Fine. I hear you. But remember, an Enneagram 1 is like the 8s and 9s in the gut triad, also called the Instinctual Intelligence Center. And until this reading, I had never noticed how much Poirot talks about instincts. Of the 15 times the word instinct, or some variation thereof, is mentioned. Poirot says it 11 times. And here are a couple of those instances. Come now, urged Poirot encouragingly. Do not fear. Speak your mind. You should always pay attention to your instincts. Instinct is a marvelous thing, mused Poirot. It can neither be explained nor ignored.
You see, he said sadly, you have no instincts. It was intelligence you were acquiring just now, I pointed out. The two often go together, said Poirot enigmatically. So I feel like that just, ah, oh, it captures that space of quite literally the instinctual intelligence center that ones have. And Poirot, as a self-aware one, I'd say, easily values not only his own instincts, but those of the people around him and is frequently calling people out for not paying attention to it. Um, so there you have it. I say Poirot is a one. If you disagree, I, as always, as we always say, want to hear what you think. So please come find me on the social meds and tell me why I'm wrong about Poirot as a one. Miss Marple, on the other hand, I say is a nine with an eight wing. So to begin, nines are one of the withdrawing stance numbers on the Enneagram, along with fives and fours. And this can look different in each person. Sometimes it means that we withdraw physically. Sometimes that we withdraw mentally. But at least for myself, it is meant being forgotten or overlooked in different situations, which is both comfortable and also a big part of the lies that hit a nine and probably other withdrawing stances as types as well. But in several instances in this single short story, Miss Marple's words are cut off and even though she is hosting all of these people in her home, when they decide to make it a regular gathering to discuss unsolved crimes, the following happens. Let me see. How many are we? One, two, three, four, five. We ought really to be six. You have forgotten me, dear, said Miss Marple, smiling brightly. That interaction, and particularly that bright smile, feels to me like a Nines brand of passive aggression. I know a smile doesn't seem aggressive, but trust me, it can be. Still, that could end up being any of the withdrawing stances, I hear you arguing back. That being said... The biggest thing that screamed nine to me was Miss Marple's talk style. Nine's talk style is called Epic Tale because we see the importance of every little detail that lead to a situation. And we want to make sure you see how it all connected because that's how we see it. It can get tedious to some people and... In college, some of my friends actually labeled long, meandering stories, Janelle stories. <laughs> Fortunately, they meant it mostly as endearing, or that's how I choose to see it now. It is also this way of seeing all those connections that means we will sometimes offer seemingly very random comments 
or additions to conversations. Miss Marple does both of these things, the detailed meandering and the non sequiturs. After they bring up the idea of unsolved mysteries, Miss Marple chimes up and says, I know just the sort of thing you mean, dear. For instance, Mrs. Carruthers had a very strange experience yesterday morning. She bought two gills of pickled shrimps at Elliot's. She called at two other shops, and when she got home, she found she had not got the shrimps with her. She went back to the two shops and she had visited, but these shrimps had completely disappeared. Now that seems to me very remarkable. There are, of course, all kinds of possible explanations, said Miss Marple, her cheeks growing slightly pinker with excitement. For instance, somebody else... And here she's cut off by her nephew, who interrupts to tell her she's not quite on the right path and is missing the point of what they're talking about. And this just seems to me like a perfect example of both her adding something to the conversation that she sees as being extremely pertinent, but to most of the others, it doesn't seem to fit. And it also is at least the beginning of that very detailed epic tale style of telling this story. This method of connecting the small details that others miss is how Miss Jane Marple solves not only the crime presented in the Tuesday nightclub, but also many, many others. Like I said at the beginning, these two detectives really deserve their own episodes, and I really wish now that I had chosen a different text for Miss Marple, because she is brilliant and kind of a badass and she truly deserves so much more attention in space but because first impressions are what they are I wanted to make sure I used her first textual appearance I ran into difficulties typing Miss Marple because of the lack of information from just one story but I'm gonna stick with her as a nine wing eight there are more examples in other texts that I could point to, but unfortunately, I chose just this one, and like I've said, she deserves more time. Of course, in some of the other stories, she may very well be represented in a different light that contradict my stand in that nine-wing eight space. Uh, speaking of adaptations and other stories and the things that get stuck in your head when you're trying to type people, and by people I mean fictional characters, I have watched and read so many Agatha Christie stories, whether it's the Masterpiece Theater adaptations that were available or just reading the books themselves and enjoying them that Poirot and Marple are this weird amalgamation of what I imagine in my head from reading the book and the various actors and actresses who have played them along the way. And I'll be honest, even some of the characters that have been inspired by them, like Angela Lansbury's character in Murder, She Wrote, who is based on Marple, there's something to the way characters get interpreted and reinterpreted 
that made this process a little more difficult have actually been postponing viewing the newest adaptation of the ABC Murders, a Poirot story starring John Malkovich as Poirot until after I finish recording this so that the viewing of it doesn't add another portrayal to distract me from the text that was in front of me for this. Um, If you're interested, that is available currently on Amazon Prime, and I plan on watching it in the next day or so. But even watching Kenneth Branagh portray Poirot in the most recent Murder on the Orient Express is honestly what started me thinking on the one line because from the very first moments of the film he just shows this perfectionism that I knew was present in Poirot but seeing it portrayed by an actor is still different than reading it from a page and so I tried to not think about those things when typing these characters but it's really difficult Overall, I think the thing that struck me the most with this deep dive into these characters is the way in which Christie's stories and Golden Age detective fiction, with its rules, with the way instinct and method in tandem are what bring what's wrong to light and then try to make it right. That just feels so particularly one-ish. Of course, as I feel Becky would be reminding me right now if she were here, I am a nine with a strong one wing. And being in the gut triad, I am more likely to see the world and the stories I love and the stories I identify with in that way. And like I usually do when typing characters, if my own type or familiar types pop up immediately. I I did try to find other options for these characters. I wrestled with well, is Marple is she is she a two? Because there's that cozy space. Is she is she an eight? Because she's definitely going after justice hardcore. Um but I came back to nine with an eight wing for her and to one for Poirot. So take this as you will. And as always, please, please, please tell me what you think. Both before now and in this process, I have thought a lot about trying to suss out Agatha Christie's Enneagram type. And... With all her writing, her autobiography, and some of her notebooks that have been published, I probably could try. Of course, I'm still wary of typing non-fictional humans, and that wasn't my aim for this episode. So, ask me sometime and I'll tell you what I think. Thank you for listening to my solo episode on Dame Agatha Christie's Detectives. Check back next time as Becky dives into the dark world of P.I.s and femme fatales while looking at hard-boiled detective fiction and film noir through the lens of the Enneagram. I'd like to thank Matthew Zignis for the use of his music. Check out his songs on iTunes, Google Play, 
Spotify, and any other place you get music. And thank you to our sound wizard, Joel Miller. As always, I'd like to thank you, dear listener, for joining me today on this slightly more mysterious Enneagram journey. You can find us on the social meds, on Twitter and Instagram at typethiscast, and email us your thoughts at typethiscast at gmail.com to keep the conversation going. If you like what you're hearing and you want to share the Type This Cast experience with others, go rate and review us on iTunes or in your podcast app. This helps new listeners find us, specifically because of the way the iTunes algorithms work. Also, tell your friends, word of mouth still totally works. And as we say at the end of every episode, I'll leave you with Neil Gaiman's beautiful words from his wonderful poem, Instructions. Trust dreams, trust your heart, and trust your story. Story.